welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners, viewers finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. So I believe the fun drive is over so I can stop pestering people about donating for the fun drive and instead I can transition right back into pestering people about getting Counterpunch Plus subscriptions. That is how you support Counterpunch, how you keep this independent media project going after more than 30 years. Um, Recently, I just want to convey a quick anecdote here before we get started on another interesting conversation. Um, Got some correspondence from one of our longtime supporters just highlighting the fact that she was going to overcome her revulsion at Eric Dreitzer and Counterpunch Radio's coverage of Ukraine and still donate to Counterpunch because of Counterpunch's excellent coverage of Gaza and uh, everything related to Palestine. So holding your nose, overcoming your hatred and and disgust at Counterpunch Radio and Eric Dreitzer is perfectly fine as long as we're supporting Counterpunch. Go to Counterpunch to the website, get your subscription, Counterpunch Plus, support us, support your friends. One of our friends is with us again today. I'm so happy to have him back here. You can find Yoav Litvin on Twitter at Nookie L. Ur, N-O-O-K-Y-E-L-U-R. But more importantly, Yoav is a friend of Counterpunch. He's a writer, photographer, and doctor of neuroscience. His political analysis and interviews with radical leaders, thinkers, and others have been featured in a wide range of media outlets. He's published several books of photography. He is an accomplished uh, artist and uh, writer and researcher, and uh, his literature reviews, book chapters on neuroscience of emotion have been published in a host of academic publications in the United States. Yoav is the treasurer at the Whatcom Peace and Justice Center. All around swell guy, very interesting person. Hi, Yoav. Welcome back to Counterpunch. Hey, Eric. Thanks. It's by the way, it's nuclear, the way George Bush used to say Nookie. it. Nuclear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nuclear. <laughs> nuclear. Oh, right. get out of here. I've been yeah. seeing your Twitter handle for years and never understood that until this very moment. I'm I'm going to sleep a little easier tonight, knowing that. Um, Yoav, <laughs> Yoav, it's been a while since we chatted. Uh, some of the people who may be listening to our conversation don't know who you are and why the heck you're here talking to me this week. Tell us a little bit about your background, um, where you come from, your time in Israel, your evolution, whatever you want to tell us. Yeah, I'm a, I'm an Israeli American. I grew up in both uh, societies. Um, I uh, my formidable years uh, six to twelve I did here in the U.S. Hence my language skills are superior in English than in Hebrew. Uh, but um, you know I went back and uh, I did do the uh, high school years and then I I went into the military and I actually enlisted. I was a medic in the paratroopers. Um, I vehemently disliked the army from the very first day when I was told to move a pile of dirt from there to here. And then when I finished to move it back. Um, So the whole mentality of breaking you down was immediately, um, I, I, I just was averse to it. But I grew up in a liberal Zionist home. Um, I was definitely propagandized and, you know, uh, brainwashed um, from a very, very, very young age to believe in the righteousness of the Zionist enterprise. Um, and I, I w- did not have the, uh, the um, power to resist the barrage of propaganda at that age. Um, I definitely, um, Israeli society was extremely oppressive to me, uh, regardless. And when I had an opportunity to leave and do my graduate studies abroad, I took it. And that's where I finally had the peace of mind to look back at what Zionism is at Israel with some support from, uh, um, trusted, um, activists who kind of helped me along the way. I discovered through my scientific training, I knew how to actually research. And every time I encountered myself saying something that I wasn't sure of, I actually said, wait a minute, I'm going to go back and actually check it out. 
And then slowly, slowly, I uncovered layer after layer of, of, of unpacking lies and propaganda and feeling intense guilt and shame and all these very powerful emotions that we all try to avoid like the plague. Uh, but I'm, I feel very, you know, happy and content with this route. And it's, a, it's an amazing experience to decolonize your mind. Let me say, let me just conclude with that. You know, you raise an interesting question that I didn't even have prepared here, but just as a sort of aside, given what we know about Israeli society, which we're going to talk about more in a, in a bit, um, would you say that it is only possible to begin to decolonize your mind and to begin to unlearn all of the propaganda out once you get outside of Israel? Is it impossible to do when you're still within Israeli society? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, there are people who are able to do it. I I was not confident enough. I was, I'm, you know, I was very childish at 18. Um, I, I was not politically savvy whatsoever. But for example, you know, our mutual comrade, Ronnie Barkan, um, refused service. Uh, and there are others uh, who do that, but they are a minuscule minority. So your point is very well taken. The only way I could actually have the peace of mind because the barrage of stress and of propaganda is so intense and relentless that I feel like it's virtually impossible unless you grow up maybe with parents who have that kind of um, th those teachings of teaching you to think critically, independently, etc. Now, what I mean, you liberal Zionist background, what compelled you to enlist, say, so this was something, this wasn't just a mandatory, this wasn't just mandatory military service, or was it mandatory military service? Yeah. yeah oh, okay. Mandatory. Okay, I see. Now, what time period were you in the uh, military? I was in between 94 and 97. Mm -hmm. um, so I did a, a significant amount of my time in southern Lebanon. And what was that when like? Was tell, still, us, tell us about that. You know, that was a, a scary. Um, that was, um, you know, you you have to you have to really be uh, aware of everything around you. Anything can be a bomb. Uh, any any you know any dirt that you see out of place, there could be a huge barrel of TNT underneath. I mean, it's, 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 it was a war zone and people I knew, um, were killed including two of my commanders. Um, uh, you know, a friend of mine was caught smuggling cigarettes and the per and, and kicked out of the unit. And, uh, the person who replaced him got killed, for example, in an ambush. So, you know, it was, uh, it was an experience. I was extremely lucky. I never had to shoot anybody. I never beat up anybody. I never, never, you know, I, I, I did not traumatize uh, somebody directly in that way. But again, I could have. Um, I definitely could have. So, you know, it's hard to look back on that and think of myself at that, at that point in time. And just just feel those emotions, and and it is a it is a is a, a journey of going through a lot of hard emotions, to to understand how colonized your mind was to 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 be able to contain those experiences. But this wasn't this wasn't um, what you might call you know um, a moment of radicalization, right? This is only the beginning of sort of a longer process of questioning is that right you know i wasn't even questioning at that point when i was in the military i just hated it um i just hated it i wanted out as soon as i could once i could i just left israel for a few years after that and just back i did a long backpacking trip um saved a bunch of money and just went to to the cheapest and most um kind of uh rugged and uh um interesting locations that I could find um, and just try to make my money last as long as it could. But at that point, I wasn't rad radicalized at all. I just wanted to get away. I, I felt 
I felt traumatized from it. So if you could find, so if you could point to something where you could say, okay, yes, I, I could identify that as the beginning mm-hmm. of my quote unquote radicalization. What is that thing? Is it a book? Is it a person? Is it an encounter? What, what would it be? It's a person who confronted me on my opinions and it's a, it's a, um, and they called me a fascist after I said something, which to me was just a kind of a very Zionist thing to say. And I just, I just was so shocked by that, that I said, okay, I, I can't keep going. This is ridiculous. Like there's no way somebody can call me a fascist and I don't even have a comeback on that. You know, I have to, I have to actually understand this history. I actually have to do the research myself because all the all these people are finding all these flaws in my reasoning, and I'm finding these flaws. And as a trained scientist, I just it's something I couldn't tolerate. Um, so that's why I actually. Um, I actually encourage people to confront others in, in a situation where the other is prepared to maybe listen. Because I was already prepared. I had a good friend who kept sending me, you know, more progressive, more left-leaning stuff that's critical of Zionism. I was already kind of ready for something to happen. And then that happened. So I do encourage people to you know, talk to their families on, on the holidays to, to uh, vocalize their, their anti-Zionist or critiques, anti-Zionist opinions or critiques of Zionism, even if they're, they're not explicitly anti-Zionism, anti-Zionists. So I, uh, yeah, I definitely think that people can make that transition, but it's hard and, and very few do it. I want to ask you a slightly different question now. Um, the word Zionism is now much more discussed than it used to be. Like even in, in, in mainstream U.S. discourse, you didn't used to hear the word Zionism. You would hear talk about Israel, the Israel you know, issue, the Middle East, Palestine, peace in the Middle East, et cetera, et cetera. But Zionism as a coherent idea was not something that was openly discussed, and it is now, which I think is an interesting point in and of itself. But what I want to ask you is what are some of the misconceptions about Zionism? What are some of the things that you hear people on the left even saying about Zionism that you think are either misguided or flat out wrong? Yeah. Um, you know, Elan Pape has a great book precisely on this topic. I think it's 10 myths about Zionism or about Israel. I'm not sure about the title, but you know, the number one propaganda pillar of, of Zionism is the conflation of Zionism with Judaism. That is the number one, you know, um, ideological pillar of this white supremacist movement. Without Judaism to scapegoat, Zionism would correctly be viewed as a settler colonialist movement exactly like the one that colonized the United States, Australia, New Zealand, etc. So the connection to the religion of Judaism, which is, uh, you know, the, the conflation between Zionism and Judaism, that is the greatest fallacy. Um, that is the fallacy that needs to be deconstructed for the Zionist movement to just collapse. Literally, this is what holds the Zionist movement. Um, the the conflation of with Judaism change. If you if you deconstruct it, it changes everything. It changes, for example, um, the alliances um, that resist uh, Zionism. When it's defined as something that is Jewish, then the alliances are necessarily those who support Jewish people and those who do not support Jewish people, which are a lot of anti-Semites, for example. I could talk later about how Zionism is in itself an anti-Semitic movement. But when you actually reframe it correctly as a colonialist white supremacist movement, then you have the entire global South as a resistance. And that is absolutely the correct framing. 
because colonialism is something that is connected to capitalism, which is connected to the global north, which is the struggle we should be waging. Um, so there is a very strong is uh, in Israeli interest to keep that conflation in place with Judaism, and it's very hard to combat it. Uh, even you know allies uh, find it extremely hard because Israel itself, the way it's constructed its laws. Uh, a, a very cursory reading or very, you know, if you don't know how to recognize the propaganda, what you see is a privileging of Jewish people. So naturally you would say it's a Jewish movement, it's a Jewish supremacist movement, but that falls into the Zionist propaganda. So that is definitely the number one um, um fallacy i'd say and then also the fallacy which which comes directly from that is that resistance to zionism is anti-semitic right um that of course is is false when you actually have the correct analysis of zionism as a settler colonialist movement and not a jewish movement when you look at the history of zionism when you look at the structure of zionism when you look at the function of zionism when you and and this current horrific genocide and crisis that we're in every day it comes to the foreground how israel is a white supremacist movement if it's the ongoing collaboration with the united states um you know the the obvious settler um goals of of this quote-unquote war which have nothing to do with judaism right they are in fact anti-semitic so that I would say that is the greatest fallacy. Well, I want to explore a little further something you just uh, kind of touched on, and I want to take us back to Yoav. It probably was like 2016, maybe 2017 or so. You and I were talking through some of these issues, and you made the point that we have to combat the idea of quote-unquote Zionism as quote unquote Jewish supremacy, or that Israel as a quote unquote Jewish supremacist state. And I questioned your analysis, and you made the point, and I, of course, came around then and very much hold that view now that it is white supremacy and whiteness that is at the center of Zionism, and that understanding Zionism as a white supremacist movement is actually critical for placing it into the context that you were just describing. Yeah, correct. And when you actually look at Zionism, it is the greatest anti-Semitic force today. White supremacists actually look at uh, Israeli actions and are inspired by them. Um, where where Israel and Zionism seeks um, to foment anti-Semitism it is for white supremacist reasons in order to create this global apartheid where black people go to their black countries and white people go to their white pe countries and Jewish people go to Jewish countries. Supposedly, that's the Zionist vision. And it's, you know, it's completely compatible with, uh, with white supremacist uh, ideology and notions. Um, you know, as far as the history of Zionism, also, if you look at the history, you can see throughout the history of Zionism collaborations with anti-Semites, with white supremacists, alignment with their ideals and with their goals. As far as the state itself, when you uh, look at the relationship of the uh, ruling class with brown, black and indigenous people, it's exactly the same relationship as in other white supremacist states. Um, so really, uh, it, it, other than the narrative, un, other than the propaganda that attempts to mask um, um, what is actually going on, if you actually analyze, um, then you can, you can, as clear as day, you can see that it is white supremacy. Uh, you know, now we see, and, and, and Israel has been kind of the forefront of global white supremacy. Uh, if it's as a training ground for police forces that later come back to the United States and use the same kind of tactics that were used against Palestinians in Israel, now they're using it on black and brown people. If it's as a um, laboratory for weapons later to be sold 
uh, to other, to oppressive regimes that oppress their black and brown and indigenous communities. So really, it's it's throughout. And I think the question is doubly critical uh, for those of us who live in, you know, the uh, diaspora, quote unquote, right? The 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 non-Israeli centered Jewish world and Jewish life, you know, for those of us like my I come to this, of course, from, uh, you know, as a first generation, you know, born in the United States, parents coming from the Soviet Union, Zionist politics is the root of all of it. You know, the understanding of their worldview is is, it was rooted in this. And that translates into an embrace today of white supremacist politics in the form of Trumpism, Trump, MAGA, all of this appeals very much to the Soviet immigrant community, to many immigrant communities, in fact, especially those that have that embedded sort of white supremacist outlook. Um, And something you mentioned to me back years ago, Yoav, that I wanted to get you to comment on as well is what it's like for non-white Jews in Israel to illustrate the point about white supremacy and a white supremacist state. Yeah. As far as your last point, um, you know, there's many, many stories about um, non-white Jews and the the bigotry that they uh, faced uh, coming to um, to Israel because they came in the 50s. It was Israel already. Uh, most of them, they were their later, later um, what's called aliyahs, but um, the, most of them came after the state was formed. Um, so there's many, many, many stories about uh, bigotry and persecution. And like with every uh, white supremacist um, society, you know, if you accept the general narrative, then they will uh, accept you into the society. It's still uh, it's still a hierarchy, but they will accept you if you then oppress the 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 people, um, the people who are less the, the others who are underneath you within the white supremacist scale. So if you agree to um, to pretty much erase your own non-white identity and adopt this new Jew, quote unquote, Zionist identity, then you are able to participate in society and oppress those who everybody oppresses Palestinians, of course. So if you accept the fact that Palestinians are the lowest of the low, um, then you are allowed to participate in society. If you see Palestinians as your brothers and sisters, which is how Arab Jews should naturally see them, um, then then you're you're a threat and you will you will be persecuted. I want to ask you uh, a little bit about Israeli society before we take a break. And specifically, uh, you and I talked for, well, we've been talking for years, I guess, uh, about a fascistization process that's been ongoing for quite a long time. One could argue it's really goes back to 1948. I don't want to get into the sort of semantic argument about that more about recent times and what israel was say in the 1990s versus what israel has become today and of course there is this right-wing trajectory that is obvious for anyone who's paid attention but i'm what i'm getting at in this question is how is israeli society changed before the war quote the the, the most recent war and after yeah. I mean, I know you're not there now, but we can all sort of see that this was a transformative moment on both ends of this conflict. How has Israeli society been transformed? Well, let me just start with the 90s because you mentioned it. The 90s were a time where people were trying to form bonds, where Palestinians and Israelis were forming bonds. But it was it was doomed. It was always doomed because there was never a real um process of truth and accountability. So forming bonds can never actually succeed in in such an environment. You have to first go through truth and accountability. So that collapsed for uh, for many reasons, which um, many of your listeners know. Um, And then the uh, policies of apartheid just kept getting worse and just getting more severe and more severe. And when you have growing and more severe apartheid, you have less and less 
um, actual contact between these two societies and empathy just breaks down. People lose empathy when there's no physical contact, less and less empathy for the other and more and more susceptibility to propaganda and to villainization. And uh, the more the, the, the apartheid became finite and, and the, the more it was obvious that uh, these settlements in the West Bank uh, were just growing and growing, and the f- the frustration among uh, the Palestinians uh, rightly kept you know mounting, and it was it was a pressure cooker. It was obviously this is not sustainable. However, Israelis thought it was sustainable. That was exactly where we were on October sixth. Israelis thought the Palestinian problem has gone away. You know they're behind this huge fence. Uh, we don't see them. We don't hear them. Occasionally, we quote unquote mow the lawn, but that's fine because that's what we have to do to sustain, you know, the um, happiest place on earth here. And or, I don't. It was ranked like one of the happiest places on earth, um, which why I'm mentioning it. But um, that's where we, we were on October sixth. Uh, Israel was in. Uh, you know, if 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 you're able to make that cognitive kind of split in your mind, it was an extremely hedonistic. Uh, you know, you can get anything you desire. Uh, very capitalistic, just kind of like the forefront of global white supremacy and capitalism. Really, the best food, the best everything. However, there's a people literally across a fence who are in a in a concentration camp uh who have like zero rights who um their health is you know they 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 barely have drinking water etc 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 and finally this exploded on October 7th um so i think there was a just immense shock because there was absolutely no way to deal with this everybody was on a completely different wavelength um extreme shock and um and um anger revenge just the way that israelis most israelis i'm not trying to say all of them but most israelis just went to that that place of anger and revenge and the israeli uh government with their propaganda, and I talked to people about the rave. The rave was specifically, the propaganda uh, concerning the rave was specifically designed to get liberal Zionists on board uh, for this genocide. Because liberal Zionists are absolutely crucial for the propaganda apparatus in Israel. And the kids who were who murdered in, in this rave, whether by Hamas or whomever um, were were um, sons and daughters of liberal Zionists. They went to a very kind of peacenik sort of quote unquote. I mean, don't ask me. You go to a peacenik rave next to the next to a ghetto, but that's the people. That's these who these kids were, and the whole notion of um, these atrocities committed at this rave was designed to get liberal Zionism on board. So it was shock, it was trauma, it was, of course, the propaganda involved the Holocaust and how everybody, you know, Hamas is worse than Nazis. Everything is playing into the reinstatement of fear in order to get the society on board for the next big colonialist land grab. Um, that was the bottom line. We have an opportunity now, you know, to grab all this land. Who's in our way? Okay, the liberal Zionists are the only people who could actually get in our way. We need to reinstate their fear. We need to channel it towards aggression, towards revenge. And that's what they did. So much more to say, but let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we'll talk a little bit more about Israeli society. We'll talk about the United States, because how could you talk about Israel without talking about U.S. imperialism? So um, much more. uh, Follow Yoav on, I don't know, what the hell do they call it now? X, Twitter, who the fuck cares? Uh, Nuclear is actually the the Twitter handle. I wish I knew that before I did the intro. At N-O-O-K-Y-E-L-U-R Nuclear on Twitter, X, whatever it is. Talk to you all after the break. 
Somebody say that the war ended today But everybody knows it's going still Our motherlands and mother seas Here's what we believe It's simple, we don't care back chatting with Yoav Litvin. Um, again, follow Yoav on social media, on Twitter. It's nuclear, as I spelled before the break, but this isn't really literally radio, so you heard that already. Um, okay, Yoav, let's talk a little bit about Israeli, um, well, not as not Israeli society, but how Israel and Israeli politics and society, I guess, mirrors in some ways big brother the united states right u.s imperialism is the uh gigantic elephant in the room when we talk about israel and this is something that unfortunately of course the mainstream press the mainstream discourse will never discuss this so how is israel in its relationship with the united states here at towards the end of November in 2023. And has that relationship changed since October the 7th? I mean, the relationship for decades already has been one of, um, you know, empire and it's, um, and it's lackey uh, state that, that uh, carries out its interests. If Israel did not carry out American interests, then tomorrow it would be done. Uh, I, you know, Israelis have this illusion that they can survive without the U.S., but um, that is that is just absolutely wrong. Uh, Israel is uh, dependent not only economically and uh, um, in its quote-unquote security, but also diplomatically, politically, and in many other fashions. Um, it is literally the uh, the, the the Sparta of 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 uh, of U.S. empire, you know, it is the forefront. Um, as far as uh, October seventh, and if anything has changed, you know, I don't see anything changing. Uh, Biden has just proven to be a complete. Uh, you know, he follows uh, the 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 U.S. kind of um, narrative and the white supremacist agenda of uh demonstrating that uh that israel is um you know is is the the um the one that uh holds all the cards the all-powerful the one whose narrative is the correct narrative the one who um is engaged in a war of quote-unquote self-defense which is obviously false you know, without Ameri- without Biden's backing, that this would have been this couldn't have gone on this long, and you know we've been getting reports of actual U.S. boots on the ground. I don't know how much of that is you know influential in in the actual fighting, but I have no doubt that there's intelligence cooperation um, and cooperation in many other fashions. So, you know, the U.S. is carrying out. Uh, the Israel is carrying out U.S. interests. Um, you know, we have the story of the lobby groups in Washington. It's a very, very long history and conversation. 
Well, part of the reason why I'm getting getting at this is because there was a period leading up to, uh, you know, early October where certain things seemed at least up for discussion. Uh, there was there there were uh, machinations in Israel as far as undermining the Biden administration with uh, relative to Russia, Russia sanctions, the Ukraine conflict. There were questions about, uh, you know, Israel's reliability as a partner for NATO vis-a-vis Ukraine and supplying Ukraine, the uh, Netanyahu and all of the weird, I shouldn't say weird, but very comfy connections with Putin and the Kremlin folks. So there there was the kind of feeling among many observers that Israel was trying to kind of play a middle ground, play both sides and kind of dance around uh, the alliances. And I feel like that has also maybe changed since uh, the beginning of October, where Israel is, I think, again, more firmly in the U.S. camp as we see the United States marshalling international support for Israel at a time where it's failing internationally. Yeah, yeah. You know, all these moves that we saw before October 7th, Uh, Israel has relationships with China, with Russia, with Ukraine, ongoing uh, relationships that that um, that the U.S. cannot necessarily control. Uh, However, if the U.S. really, really wanted to, it could put it could put its foot down. If there's a deal that the U.S. is not happy with, it could. And we've seen this happen in the past. So ultimately, the U.S. gives the final approval. And, and I don't feel that that has changed. If Israel was engaged in some kind of uh, weapons deal, for example, with uh, that the U.S. was not happy with, it would not happen, period. Um, but what we've seen is just, uh, you know, it's an embarrassing uh, adoption of uh, Israeli propaganda by the U.S., not because they are... You know, there's often this confusion: who is the, the 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 dog wagging the tail or the tail wagging the dog? Right? Of course, the U.S. is empire, um, and and Israel is empire's uh, uh, you know servant and lackey. However, um, there's mutual interests that go here and there. Um, the U.S. and Biden, I think they made a calculation that uh, supporting Israel is absolutely essential. We saw the moving of these aircraft carriers very quickly. Uh, there was no doubt. Um, and and they've hedged their bets on Israel. And I think ultimately, as if we move to um, American politics, it looks like it's going to hurt, hurt Biden and Democrats severely. Well, I you, you that's where I'm headed next, so we might as well go there. I guess we can return a little bit to Israeli politics because I do want to ask a little bit about Netanyahu because I do think there's some misconceptions. But but you mentioned U.S. politics. Trump is obviously looming as far as 2024 goes. We know what Trump means as far as policy towards Israel, Jared Kushner, the closeness with Netanyahu, the moving of the embassy, everything that happened you know, in those four years. What does Trump and a potential second Trump administration mean for Israel and the U.S.-Israel relationship? You know, at this point, Biden has been so horrific as far as uh, U.S. policy with Israel, it's always hard to see what can be worse. You know, um, giving, a, you know, enabling and supporting this genocide. I don't know what could be worse. Really, I do not. I do not know what can be worse. Uh, do I want Trump to come back to the White House? Of course not. You know, that was a nightmare just hearing his voice every day. Um, but. As far as I'm concerned, what's going on now is as horrific as it can get. So I, I, if there's one lesson, though, that you do learn if you follow Middle East politics is that there's always a lower place we can we can get to. Well, that's just it, because part of part of Trump's kind of uh, political orientation is bringing the war on terror home. As my friend Arun Gupta always said, you know, that uh, Trump 
kind of internalizes what was the post 9-11 external war on terror, where he just said it recently in the speech the other day, the enemy is within, right? That this is that a second Trump term would be the weaponization of all of those instruments of oppression that the United States has, the various institutions, the US Department of Justice, the Pentagon, everything, all of these you know, institutions of, of, of death and oppression that have been used to commit countless atrocities around the world, they are being turned internally. And that is where Trump in some ways represents almost, you know, in a twisted sense, you could say it's almost a natural progression for the United States to be headed towards a kind of overt authoritarian fascist political framework. But that's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. Yeah, yeah, definitely looks like that. Um, yeah, I agree with you. I think it would it's going to be if if he does get in. Uh, but we're already seeing how it's becoming scarier and scarier to be um, Muslim, to be Palestinian, to be black and brown, indigenous, uh, all the natural enemies of white supremacy. Um, and I think uh, these uh, anti boycott laws are getting. We can see their weaponization. Um, the anti-BDS laws, and that's something that I think, let me just say that I think after this or this ongoing genocide, everybody should support BDS. I think that is the bare minimum that we can do. Boycott, divestment, sanctions, movement, BDS, the boycott, the, the, the movement that is spearheaded by Palestinians calling for a boycott of Israeli goods and cultural products and so forth. Right, exactly. And um, yeah, so I think it's going to be very, you know, we had here where I live, we had a um, Arab Student Association uh, get attacked by the local media here for uh, for support of, of Palestinians and being labeled as terrorists. And uh, we, we had to fight back and, and I think we, we did a good job. But um, this is something we're going to see more and more of, especially if Trump comes back. We're going to see this war come come home. And like you said, it's the natural progression of this like declining capitalist empire. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of jumping around here and in ways that are very unhost like. But um, I want to ask you um, about Netanyahu for a second. There was talk before. October 7th, that Netanyahu's government could collapse from the protest movement, from the miscalculations, the power grab, the judicial, quote unquote, judicial reform, all of these various things. I want to ask you, number one, how has Netanyahu himself and his political operation, how has that fared given the last seven weeks of developments? Has this been a boon for Netanyahu, has it resuscitated his political career, given him a new life with the whole rally around the leader bullshit? Or is this exposing Netanyahu to potentially sealing his fate, as I think it may come out that Netanyahu's government was asleep at the wheel? Yeah, I mean, Netanyahu has made a Teflon, right? But um, initially, when these, when these, uh, when these, protests, these liberal Zionist protests last spring began, I wrote, I published a piece in Counterpunch pretty much saying that it's, it's not going to lead anywhere because they didn't even mention Palestinians, right? They all, they, 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 they were um, fearful for the privileges that they got uh, accustomed to. And they were concerned about is the, the democracy for the Zionists being eroded. So there was really no hope coming from that for any kind of meaningful change. However, Netanyahu was kind of in danger because this sentiment grew uh, within the liberal Zionist population. And as much as Netanyahu leans on these radical settlers, he does still need these elites, which still hold power, a lot of power in Israel. So uh, he was in dire straits. He was in trouble. Um it didn't look like it was going to really collapse yet. And, you know, war is always a gift for people like Netanyahu. So now he can posture, even though he, as you said, he complete, you know, he was 
completely exposed as 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 asleep at the wheel. I mean, Mr. Security and uh, at least 1,200 people were killed on his watch. On his watch, and and the the the, the military was just nowhere to be seen for hours and carried out like uh, apparent, you know, Israeli uh, military and eyewitness say that, you know, is uh, Israeli military shot at Israelis and there was complete panic and chaos. And allegedly they were directly warned by the Egyptian high level military right. officials and countless other examples where potentially could have prevented some of some of what happened. Potentially. Right, right. I mean, he was looking for this kind of opportunity. He was trying to foment something. He was trying hard in the West Bank. Um, you know, I think it's conspiratorial to start delving into the idea of maybe he, you know, knew ahead of time or anything of that sort. But it's not at all far-fetched to say that it's played into his hand. Um, still, support for him is is not high whatsoever. However, Israeli society is very uh, obedient during war. Uh, and there is a fascistic crackdown. We see, you know, uh, Israeli police literally looking over the protest signs. There was finally an anti-war protest that was approved, but they actually, some of the signs they didn't approve. And they weren't so controversial for people like you and me. They were just like, you know, stop the genocide. Or something of that sort, where it's like, no, they couldn't be. They, those those were actually taken out. So there's there's definitely a fa- a movement towards com- overt fascism. There's Ben Gvir. Uh, ben Gvir is a minister uh, in the government. He's a f- outright fascist, and he's been handing out uh, weapons to civilians. So there's pretty much like Zionist gangs roaming around the West Bank. Um, completely, uh, uh, you know, they can do whatever they want. No, and they even have support from the military. So for Netanyahu, back to your question, this is great. All these developments for him, and, and we've seen that he doesn't care about the hostages. He could have had a hostage deal well, like weeks ago, and he, he didn't want that because it wouldn't have helped him. For him, he wants the war to continue because it's his only chance of a erasing the memory of his huge blunder, b kind of revitalizing his his image as some kind of you know Jewish new modern King David or whatever. Um, and and I wouldn't be surprised if 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 a new front develops in the north. It's hard for someone like uh, someone of my age or you know people of my general sort of age bracket to not think of 9-11 and the immediate post 9-11 period. Obviously, we heard this many times before, Israel's 9-11, Israel's 9-11, blah, blah, blah. I mean, the tendency that people have to rally around this absolute buffoon, George W. Bush, for instance, in uh, in the 9-11 example, or Netanyahu, who is really reviled by vast, vast segments of the Israeli population, and the tendency, the tendency not only to rally around such leaders, but to permanently alter in a fascistic direction. The United States never recovered from 9-11. This is what most people who don't who aren't from the United States don't understand that the US was on a fascist trajectory from September 12th on and it never stopped blue lives matter and the crackdown against black lives and all of this stuff it's just the natural evolution of that same process and i wonder what's happening in israel now are 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 we at a point now where the liberal zionist is now speaking like what used to be the right-wing Zionist and the right-wing Zionists sound like the kahanists and the kahanists are eating live babies or what, what what's going on in israel yeah, it's definitely that's the direction. Um, you know, the it's constant shift to the right. Liberal Zionists are getting more right wing. Uh, you know, Ariel Sharon was once upon a time considered uh, extreme right wing Zionist, and when he uh, was prime minister, he was uh, celebrated as a moderate. You know, so this process has been going on for a long time, um, but. Like I said, 
there's there's overt fascism. There is, there are arrests for Facebook posts. Um, th- I am sure there is monitoring of of activists, and um, and it's a very scary time. So, you know, um, I don't see it changing from within whatsoever. I don't see any hope from within. Um, I think Israel is. If, if this fascist trajectory is going to change in any way, it has to suffer some kind of defeat. I don't know if it's military or political or economic, but it won't change course on its own. And um, trying to focus on converting Zionists is a completely failed and counterproductive endeavor. So I... I usually tell people, you know, on social media, I don't inter, I don't even interact. I just block immediately because it's a waste of time. I think, you know, all those who are, who are anti-fascists should focus on empowerment of our people, of our camp, on cooperation, on building alliances, uh, on making those connections between all those suffering uh, from white supremacy, indigenous people here in the United States, uh, black and brown people, Palestinian people, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I, 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 I feel like this is the direction. And we also spoke about this years ago. Where we already felt that this was the direction we were going. So it's just, it's just going along in that trajectory. And I think it's also about recognizing who's at the center of the struggle. And not allowing this to turn into, you know, like many other struggles that become sort of a political football, as it were. Yeah, you know, this you just reminded me one thing that the uh, Jewish supremacist narrative does also is take a political, a modern political struggle and change it into this ancient, holy, religious, in an unsolvable. Um, um, conflict, right? So the framing and understanding who who the other side is, that's why truth is so important as a first stage to, to actual reconciliation. Understanding who the other side is, understanding the propaganda is so important. Also in this country, who is Donald Trump? Okay, he loves Zionists, but he's an anti-Semite. Let's understand that Zionism is an anti-Semitic movement, even though it claims to represent Jews. These kinds of realizations, clarifications can help us in this struggle. I think we're also seeing something like, or at least some people would say that we're seeing some kind of a struggle over issues of Zionism and anti-Semitism on the right. I recently saw the whole blow up over Candace Owens and David Horowitz and the Zionist sort of uh, uh, right-wing media bubble. And um, I wonder if the if the extreme fascists are now sort of in collision with the um, traditional right-wing neocon Zionists. Is there something like that happening? I'm not getting that vibe whatsoever. No. I may... I- I think I missed uh, what you just... Uh, with I just happened Owens. to read it this morning, to be honest with you, that uh-huh. uh, Ben Shapiro and Candace Owens, uh-huh. two luminaries of the right-wing blogosphere, seem to be at some kind of difference over this. I just, I wonder, because as you say, the far right is deeply anti-Semitic. So where do all these neocon Jews go? Yeah, but that's exactly the kind of quote-unquote um, struggles that are presented within Israeli society as a way of claiming that Israel is a democracy. Right. So you show you show these... <laughs> the illusion of discourse, the illusion of... Yes, debate. exactly. Yes. There's some kind yes. of... Look, we're still, we're still disagreeing, right. so we must be a democracy. But no, they're still... They're very strongly in the white supremacist camp. Maybe they disagree on this or not, that, but it's... Most of these people are grifters, and if the next day they have, it's worth their while to change their opinion. They'll do it. Just I'm like I'm interested in this question because in in U.S. society something is changing. The demographics have shifted. Generations have you know my grandparents' generation has died out. My parents are the are the old grandparents now, and 
things are changing. And one of the things that I encountered recently that I will just share with you a brief anecdote, uh, encountering somebody lifelong Democrat in, you know, very much, you know, uh, uh, you know, Democratic Party voter, Israel supporter in their 70s throughout their life, right? Jewish person from greater New York area, okay, says to me, oh, this thing about Gaza, this is, come on. And I said, what do you mean? He he says, you know, he kind of whispers it to me, you know, he's like, this is genocide. You can't, it's genocide. You know, this is, this is a mainstream Democrat, somebody who donates to local Democratic Party, you know, candidates and so forth. The mainstream is being impacted by this in ways that I think might be unpredictable that we might not see necessarily right now or even a year from now, but that will eventually have permanent political ramifications. Yeah. Yeah, that's the hope. You know, that's why I said the hope comes from outside of Israel. Uh, I don't see anything like that happening within Israel. If anything, it's just going more and more to the right. The mainstream is pretty much saying, let's do gen- let's genocide, let's flatten Gaza. That's the, you know, that's much more in the mainstream. But I agree with you. You know, we see reports on BBC, on CNN, suddenly that seemed like 10 years ago, you, you couldn't imagine exactly. you would see these yep. kinds of reports. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, that's the hope. The hope is that this, this uh, movement gains traction and and these intersectional alliances grow more powerful and that we can you know build some because they don't have an answer to the infinite game they have a finite game right their strategy is finite their strategy is steal the land extract the resources move on our strategy is build 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 it's about the war it's not about the 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 the, uh, the fight, the particular fight. It's about the whole trajectory. So my hope is that we have that time uh, between you and me. I'm not sure we have that time. I know it. Boy, do I know it. All right. Let's not end on quite such a morose note. Let me ask you in, in closing then, young people, especially who may be listening to us, um, where should they go? What should they do? I mean, where do you place your energies? As you say, it's a wasted effort, wasted energy to try to convince Zionists that the Zionism is Zionist. So what do, what do they do? What do young people do, Yoav? Where do, you, where do you advise people to look? You know, I'm working now as part of an organization uh, in my community uh, that's called the Whatcom Peace and Justice Center with young people who are just mind-blowingly smart and and uh, so, um, you know, their politics are just, just incredible, especially when you consider some of them being in their early 20s. I have a lot of hope for this generation, for this young generation. They're talking to each other through social media. They're questioning mainstream media. Uh, they're developing skills uh, as far as how to uh, assess uh, politicians and certain politics within different frameworks, if it's anti-colonialism, if it's intersectionality, um, and and uh, if it's you know the struggle against white supremacy and... Uh, different different uh, writers and artists and intellectuals, not only within Empire. So they're actually branching out to study intellectuals outside in the global South. So this is th- this for me at least. Uh, I feel like our generation we were definitely not as smart as as the kids coming up today, and and I'm just impressed every day. So I have a lot of hope. Yoav Litvin's been with us today. Uh, Yoav is on Twitter at Nuclear, N-O-O-K-Y-E-L-U-R. Yoav is a contributor to Counterpunch. Great guy, great resource. Yoav, thank you as always for chatting with us. Thanks so much, Eric. Listeners and viewers, thank you as always. Go over to Counterpunch, get your subscription to Counterpunch Plus. Chat with you again real soon.